I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hi guys, this is Santosh, your pediatric infectious disease doc and researcher. Santosh, I'm really excited today. Yeah. Because we get to go back to the future? No. Into the past? <laughs> no. What were some movies that made a huge impact on you growing up? Uh, Just me... give me like top one or two, sure. Uh, Starship Troopers, but I don't think that has any relevance here. <laughs> no, but it does explain your entomology fascination. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Okay, well, you already mentioned Back to the Future. Absolutely. Uh, Indiana Jones. Oh, classic. All, yeah, all of the indie films. Um, absolutely. And the, not fully formative, but you know, kind of gave me a taste for the adventuring and that kind of a thing. I know you're a huge Indiana Jones fan. I believe you have a wonderful little um, an action figure. You as Indiana Jones. I may have one or two or three. <laughs> or two. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, I may and I may have a few photos dressed up at film locations, but that sure. is neither here nor there. Right. Um it one of the big things of course if you're talking about Indiana Jones is how many historical sites he goes to. Now, he's always after cursed relics, but what if he was instead, and I know you'll love this, mm. hunting disease? That would just be amazing. That would be, uh, it would be better than fiction. Did you know you could be an action hero, Santosh? Did you need that role <laughs> model as a young infectious doctor growing up? I mean, me, me personally, I highly doubt it. I, I like comforts too much. <laughs> well... I found out that there is a field that does, in fact, focus on studying the past for disease. And it even has, for once in science, a kick-ass name. Oh, okay. We did a good job naming a science field or a science subject. That's rare. So it's not called like AC219 Omega or something? <laughs> oh, no. It's called paleopathology. And oh, that's amazing. Because it's something I learned about, I don't know just radio time five minutes before this episode, I figured it might be helpful if we had someone who knew what they were talking about, an expert in the field, so to say, to help take us back to the past, part two. The Wayback Machine's not coming out to this week. No, no, we can't do Wayback Machine with someone who hasn't physically been in the Wayback Machine before. It's too disorienting. Well, let's introduce Dr. Ann Grauer, who 
Here's just a very short list of her many accomplishments. Received her PhD in biological anthropology from the University of Massachusetts Amherst. She has been the president of the Paleopathology Association, the editor-in-chief for the International Journal of Paleopathology, and, if that wasn't enough, also occasionally helps out with collections for the Field Museum as a research associate and is a forensic consultant for the FBI. So, you know, sounds like <laughs> a uh, research action hero to me. Dr. Grauer, welcome to Travel Medicine. Well, thank you for the invitation to join you. We should reiterate for those of uh, you who don't know about the Field Museum, because, of course, you guys both being, uh, you know, Chicago tried and true. Um, could we talk a little bit about the Field Museum for, uh, or, or shall we save it for a just the tip at the very end? You know, let's save it for our just the tip at the end. We haven't had a good travel one in a while. And start with, for those listening at home, what is the field of paleopathology? Before we start asking you the, uh, the bare bones about it. Oh, we're starting out on a good foot or a bad foot. I haven't figured that out yet. So paleo I'm willing. I'm willing to keep digging. Oh, oh no! Oh no. no! This this is going to be the rest of the episode, Doctor Grauer. So um, you're either into it or you're not. But we'll probably find out by how long. Warned. Well, paleopathology, Wait. quite kind of simply, is the study of of ancient disease and. Ancient can be as far back as when animals first and mammals first began to evolve, or any life form actually, to um, more recent, usually focuses on human remains that could be skeletonized or mummified in some way. But the focus primarily is on changes in the human body that are associated with some kind of pathological condition. Now, are these diseases that are still seen today in some kind of new form or diseases that no longer exist, like they're locked away in a lab or buried under Arctic permafrost? What, what's the significance of an ancient disease? We have many, many diseases that we know today, but we don't necessarily understand the origins of the disease. Where do they come from? What are the environmental, the biological, the evolutionary components of it that bring us today uh, in circumstances where we're trying to figure out what happened and why. You know, COVID is a superb example. It's not just understanding the disease, but you have to understand the social, political, and economic situations that brought a virus together that wouldn't necessarily have occurred under other circumstances. So we look in the past and we try to begin to understand what diseases might we be able to recognize in the past and what might that begin to tell us about how people lived and how people died and then extend that too to how can that begin to inform us about our world today. What first drew you to the world of paleopathology? Well, that's a great question. I talk a lot about this actually with my students who find themselves not knowing what they want to do you know, for the rest of their lives or what path they want to take. I was in a similar spot. I loved archaeology. I loved history, but I also adored medicine, but I didn't like living people. So it's a bit of a problem. <laughs> um, is, is it though? <laughs> I, I was thinking there was an issue there that needed to be resolved. No, the, it, it may be. Um, I don't know if I'm uh, putting a lot of our colleagues out, Josh, but I think it's fair to say that across the board, for those of us who are clinicians, both as pathologists who deal with, you know, dead tissue and living tissue, I think there's a pretty healthy mix of people who don't like people. <laughs> anesthesia is a very, very good example. Absolutely. Anesthesia is great. <laughs> I love people. I just don't like sick ones. Oh, there. <laughs> that's very fair. That's very fair. So that's, okay. that's, I don't like suffering and pain and making decisions that, that could be wrong. So oh, no, no, there's another not... issue. <laughs> leading you to where you can use your scientific acumen and investigate without that, you know, that kind of pressure being there of like, well, you know, what's the worst that happens, you know, kind of, they're dead. <laughs> that's, that's or, oops, a fantastic way to investigate. Yeah. 
you know, and I can go back and I can reevaluate my data or reanalyze it and interpret it differently and come to another conclusion that hasn't directly harmed anyone and that hopefully provides us a greater insight into health and disease past and present. But I think one of the one of the things that was a crucial turning point for me was I never knew that there was a difference between medicine and human biology. And what I found was that I loved understanding human biology and physiology and, you know, the the processes of disease, not the healing of individuals. And when I spoke with professors about not quite knowing what directions I was going to take, one of my professors said, well, you know, you can mesh these two fields together and it's called paleopathology. And this was this ringing moment of of triumph for me where, oh my goodness, maybe this is something I can begin to pursue. And that's what led me eventually to where I am now. What does that journey look like? Are you are you going out into the field like Indiana Jones? Are you at dig sites? Are you visiting museums um, and looking at exhibits there? Like, how does this field work? Uh, all the ways you've just mentioned. So my role primarily is as is a professor at that university, and so that entails. Uh, good deal of research, as well as a a huge amount of of teaching as well. And then folded within this, when I do research, I'm either looking at data that I've collected from human skeletal remains, and these could be data that I've been able to collect because I excavated a cemetery. I can talk about that in a second. It isn't as though I said, oh, I want to just dig that one up. But there are plenty of cemeteries and human remains in our country that become impacted because we're building a new mall or condominiums or single family homes. And so or Lincoln Park, protect, we we excavate or Lincoln Park. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, there were a few thousands of skeletons there that needed to be removed. Oh, so, I didn't know about that. Chicago yeah. inside joke. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So anytime you guys are frolicking in Lincoln Park, you may be, you know, just dancing over the, you know, like desecrating remains. <laughs> no, 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 no. They they moved they moved almost all of them. Okay. They have been okay. they have been relocated. <laughs> that they, word almost they did does their best. Right. They did their best oh, gotcha, to gotcha. remove the human remains to another location. And this is very common actually. So um, Mm. there have been a number of instances where a cemetery, an old cemetery, is no longer supposed to be there because a professional company was hired to move all the bodies. But it doesn't happen. Maybe bodies or individuals were buried along the perimeter of the cemetery. They didn't realize that there were human remains there. Or maybe they were in a hurry to, you know, get to the weekend and they didn't really collect all the skeletal elements that were needed. So the number of times that I do find human remains in cemeteries or burial sites that were supposedly moved, uh, it's about 150% of the time I'll find human remains. Would you say you're a superstitious person? Not at all. I'm going to unfortunately assume that you're really not coming across a lot of booby traps when you're out at an archaeology site. <laughs> no. Well, what are some of the dangers that you do face? Poor air? Are any of these diseases transmissible when you are unearthing them? What are the collection methods? Well, so when we're excavating and I'm assisting in the recovery of human remains, there's a number of protocols we can take prior to even excavating. And a lot of that's reliant on how old is that area or that cemetery or the the collection of burials. So, for instance, in recent ones that I have been working on, these were individuals that were buried in a city cemetery in the center of the city. And there was a, a good chance that there could have been individuals who were who had died during the Civil War, and perhaps their body had been brought back up north. And we know that arsenic, for instance, was used to embalm and preserve bodies to bring these men back to their, their homes. So arsenic can serve as a 
an extraordinary contaminant and a health hazard. So we can test soil to make sure there's no contaminants of that sort. We can, if the individuals are more recently buried, we can test to make sure that there isn't a great deal of decomp of tissues that's still uh, associated with the body. But by and large, it isn't as though the pathogens that ended up affecting the individuals and perhaps led to their death, they are not going to be thriving and able then to affect or infect us. They need live tissues in order to survive. The only the only perils are ones that are quite similar to excavating or digging a hole in your garden for a rose bush where you you will get anthrax spores and you will get just ubiquitous, you know, bacteria in the soil. So our health threat is no different than an avid gardener, I would say. What kind of diseases are more common? And I guess what's, what's the measure of error that you're finding? Because are you finding something because it was in all of the population or maybe this particular graveyard was just full of this disease? Or does this touch on your research at all? Once again, it's kind of all of the above. You know, so there's there's a lot of biases or, or skewed data when we're working. And part of it isn't something that comes to light or you don't think of right away. But once you explore it and realize how the body responds to pathogen or change, then it makes a lot of sense. So for instance, the Black Plague or the 1918 flu or COVID now killed individuals at such a rapid rate from time that they became infected to time that they died, that there was very little opportunity or chance for their skeletal system to actually respond in a way that I'd be able to recognize in the bones. So what I'm seeing then are conditions that are more chronic, conditions that are more likely to be bacterial or fungal. So that's a that's a bias because I'm not going to be able to tell infectious diseases or many types of infectious diseases in the past simply because the skeletal system works so hard in many ways to serve as a storage system and to resist really quick, large macroscopic changes. So then... Archaeologists looking back on this time now, if, say, there wasn't a good written record, would have no way of knowing that COVID, a virus, was responsible for so many deaths. They would only know uh, waves of bacteria that came through and caused plagues. Is that accurate? Yes, to extent, yes. So, Santosh, what are some of the infectious diseases that you know are, are being kind of referred to or that you would think to look for. Uh, and, and this is one that I wanted to bring up with you, Dr. Grauer, was, of course, you know, infections are the best, of course, right? In terms of... <laughs> you heard it here first, kids. Listen, my motto is better the better, so you can say that infections are the best. There you go. <laughs> so in terms of the impact on human beings, and, you know, I'm this is coming from a person who's, uh, you know, a fan of Dr. Diamond out here at UCLA and guns, germs, and steel and mm-hmm. this kind of a thing. So I know the impact that large pandemics as well as local outbreaks and diseases have had on how civilization has shifted around. So certainly uh, I do think about, you know, uh, just like you said, the Justinian plague, um, you know, the, what we now call the Spanish flu uh, in the 1900s. And then you know, when we had warfare and overcrowding, so these things like typhus um, and scrub typhus, typhus that would sweep by. Um, but I, I fully understand that, you know, these things affecting the soft tissues, um, they're not going to be able to stick around in bone the way that some of these others where they can invade and actually erode like a femur or the ribs or something like that. So either longstanding chronic bacterial infections um, or fungal that makes um, that makes so much sense to me um, I do have another question though uh, just outside of you know my interest in my field so even though you're not able to pick up on those types of infections that you know were affecting the soft tissues and everything else like that right but 
you do have, uh, you know, if, if you have skeletal remains and this kind of a thing, are you able to pick up any changes in things like DNA if they're well enough preserved where you can actually see um, uh, just as a, for instance, I, I know that certain mutations clustered um, where uh, there was adaptation to prevalent disease, such as, you know, the CFTR transporter where there was an abundance of cholera or the sickle cell trait where there was malaria. Mm-hmm. Um, is, is there anything that you can do in that kind of a way to show how we kind of co-evolved if we're looking at that, even though you can't find direct evidence of the disease itself? Absolutely. So that's one of the new directions that the field of paleopathology is taking. Um, it's looking not only at actual indications of the DNA of changes in humans that perhaps occurred because of selective pressures due to pathogens, but also seeking to find remnants of the pathogens themselves and through very high-tech and careful techniques using uh, rigorous methodology so that there's no um, infections from or no pathogens from the outside getting in contamination. What they begin to do is try to see, can we begin to find remnants of these different types of pathogens or the proteins that the bodies create to ward against different pathogens? And by doing so, we're getting greater and greater insight into changes not only in these pathogens themselves, but the changes that take place in the human populations upon which pathogens you know, use as a host. And it's going to be a constant change over time as both pathogen begins to select for humans that might have a genetic predisposition to withstand or or not, as well as the human having that potential to rid or kill the pathogens uh, that aren't hardy enough to, to be maintained. And therefore, there becomes a selection towards resistance. So this is a, a huge and burgeoning field within paleopathology. The, the issue is that there's a couple of issues. One is that in many instances, it's a destructive approach to science. You have to remove you gotta, bits of bone. You got to grind up the bone or the whatever exactly. your tissue is. Oh. Exactly. And so we have to be really careful. And this has become an ethical issue because you're destroying archaeological historic material in your quest to get an answer. So mm. your question had better be good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah. it, is, do you have a favorite bone then to find like, oh, good, a pelvis. <laughs> There's a ton of material here. So I'm not damaging as much of the same. Hey, it's a legitimate question. No, no, it, is a legitimate, <laughs> it is a legitimate question. There are, there are um, areas of the human body that, that, certainly can serve as a better reservoir and storage of pathogenic material and DNA and or be more resistant to time. DNA is really fragile. So over time, it begins to degrade and and break up into little pieces. And the more little pieces, the harder it is to pull together a picture of what is is composing this, this this DNA genome of this pathogen. And because of this fragile nature of it, it we often will focus on parts of the human body, like the femur, where the bone could be quite dense. Ribs, surprisingly, have been uh, a great resource. So, you know, there's a selection of which, which bits of the body might be more productive in terms of acquiring DNA. And it also is which parts of the body might have been directly affected and infected by a specific pathogen. So those will be you know, a target as well. Okay, so those if you had a bone so to cool. pick with somebody, it would be a oh, femur or a rib. It would be a femur. Oh. <laughs> you used that pun already, Josh. Oh. Did you? <laughs> does it does it matter? No, no, no. If, you can if I unearth if I unearth an old joke. Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> of course I know about the the human changes which should go on. Uh, I always think of DNA as a very resilient molecule because of course in in the wet lab 
over here, you know, when I'm, I'm in micro, we're dealing with things on a time scale of maybe like years if we store it at minus 80. But mm-hmm. I always have to remind myself of the massive timescales that you're dealing with. Um, but it would be so fascinating if there was anything at all of marrow preserved, because I do know that in the case of a lot of these diseases that like to live in the reticula endothelial system, so those intracellular pathogens like tuberculosis, like salmonella, mm-hmm. um, they can actually, you know, bury their way and find their way. So as a, for instance, nowadays when we want to find, you know, oh, do you have typhoid fever? We actually, we take a bone marrow from a person. It has amazing yield. Brucellosis is kind of the same way. So it would be so fascinating if, they were somehow preserved, you know, not, not just in the bone, but in the marrow. It's really context dependent. So if individuals, for instance, are buried in a very anaerobic condition, then perhaps you'll have far less decomposition of the body. Or perhaps in a very arid condition, there might be some protection internally of the body. But by and large, unless an individual is is mummified in some way, we're not going to find remnants or enough remnants of soft tissue. That's not absolute, but it's not also very, very common. But I wanted to circle back to a really interesting question that you're asking in terms of uh, finding these diseases, not necessarily in bones, but what types of diseases we're finding. Because even though... We're primarily relegated to looking at conditions that will affect the skeletal system. Another feature of paleopathology is taking a look at the social and the archaeological context within which a skeleton has been found or which an individ- within which an individual has lived and died. So, for instance, why we, while we might not be able to pick up in decades to come if there were no, or centuries to come if there were no reports about COVID, we might be able to notice patterns of use of cemeteries where there's a great spike in the number of individuals who died and that that demographic profile, I mean, the age and sex of the individuals who died were not what what had transpired for decades before. And so we use those tools as well to try to understand disease in the past. That's how we can understand aspects of plague or some of the aspects of plague or cholera because people built, you know, dug pits real quickly to rid themselves of individuals who had died of these diseases for fear. Just that they throw would everybody up. in, just get them, get them away from us. Absolutely. Kind of How does cremation affect your ability to find or explore these, these burial sites or at least cultures with a, cre- a cremation tradition? It is much more challenging But uh, what I will say is that for the most part, cultures across the globe who use cremation as part of that mortuary ritual, whether it's for whatever reason, um, aren't aren't creating fire and conditions that are so hot that an individual becomes this powder that people think about now when you think about cremation and you get this powder and that's Mm -hmm. what's left of your loved one. Well, that does not happen unless you have extraordinary devices that that create very high heat yield. And at the end, you also crush the material in order to make it into powder. So we will recover chunks and pieces of bone that can be identified anatomically where it belonged or recognize that the shape and the contour may be different and that in an that in effect has, you know, an indication that there might have been remnants of disease. It certainly does destroy DNA and, and other biomolecules, however. So how old is this field or uh, who was the first paleopathologist? When did you start oh. calling yourselves? Well, there's there's kind of debate about that. The field the interest in old disease is very, is old. So there were individuals in the 18th century, 1700s, who were noticing bones that would have strange configuration and were seeking to kind of diagnose. And it became a field primarily of uh, composed of doctors who this was kind of a hobby to try to look at skeletons with conditions or, or mummies 
and see what kind of diseases they had. So the, the coining of the term paleopathology comes quite a bit later in, in time, even though we've been around for a considerable number of years, certainly since the, the turn of the 20th century. So you mentioned that it's difficult to look at this data in isolation. You have to look at the demographic composition of the population. Um, I guess, what are your methods? You did mention that some are destructive, but are you doing imaging, radiation? Is it like carbon dating or is it PCR? Or what are the tools, I guess, that you use? Because I think all, at least most of what I know of archaeology is restricted to movies, which if it's anything like, <laughs> if it's anything like film medicine is generously wildly inaccurate. Indeed it is. <laughs> A matter of fact, I use shows like Bones for my classes, and I used to show little bits and have them write down as many errors that they could find in a uh, 60 second <laughs> snippet. Oh no, uh, David Boreanaz makes mistakes. Uh, I'm so oh, disappointed. No. Constant Brenner, whatever her name is. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I used to play that game with House. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> it's, it's the same. Well, so. so I was going to answer your, answer your question about my methods. Um, you know, quite broadly, there are, as I had said, there was many directions that paleopathology has taken. For one, you know, DNA, but you also mentioned, you know, issues such as or, or techniques such as ca carbon dating and things like that. Those takes very specialized labs with very specialized training. And so more and more, the field of paleopathology has expanded by including greater numbers of individuals with extraordinarily different expertise and bringing them under an umbrella of seeking to understand the same thing, which is disease in the past. Personally, I don't use these techniques. I don't have a, I don't have a clean lab for DNA. I certainly can't do radiocarbon dating. So my tools are toothbrushes and bamboo sticks and magnifying glasses and dissecting scopes. That I, is awesome. I look macroscopically at the human <laughs> domain. So it is non-destructive. And then my very. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Best friends are individuals usually at our medical center who will let me come to their facility late at night and work with their technicians to do radiographing images of all sorts, whether it's CT, any kind of imaging we can, because that'll provide me with a different perspective and will provide me with a medium that I can now discuss with, you know, a medical doctor. They know what they're looking at when they're looking at a, uh, an x-ray. Uh, they don't know what they're looking at when they're looking at dry bone. I can assure you that. <laughs> By Jove. <laughs> This appears to be the oldest case of tuberculosis I've ever seen. And then I'll tell you, it's a pig bone. Yeah. The... <laughs> or, or if we had an orthopedic doc with us, femur. Yeah. Femur Just... broke. Me fix. <laughs> consult to medicine because we share responsibility. Exactly. Yes. Absolutely. There. I I gotta ask. I I know we're leaning a lot on infectious diseases right now, so. The, the combination of data that you're using to say that 
Um, as a, for instance, there was an outbreak over here. You see in the context of the local geography and the community, the villages and the cities, I'm able to see, you know, what people died, where they were buried. Um, I'm sure you also check out some of my favorite sources of anthropological knowledge, which is people's trash. I know that that's become <laughs> what they what they all throw out. I told you you really have to stop doing that. It's creeping no, no, the neighbors not, out. No, not in modern, not in modern <laughs> I'm times. I'm right there with you. <laughs> I, I I've been told, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that you can actually learn a lot from you know a, a, a ancient civilization's uh, rubbish or their trash, but you know about <laughs> what they utilized and everything else like that. But I'm curious as. Uh, in in all of this context and and you know looking macroscopically and finding infection as one type of disease in history um do you ever look for anything non-infectious so if there was a cluster of for instance genetic diseases um or if there was a local environmental catastrophe you know something like a a Krakatoa or a Pompeii um, it, it does, you know, looking medically at the skeletons help with uh, any of those kind of things? It can. So, for instance, our term for paleopathology really encompasses far more than infectious disease. So there's a great deal of work that's been done on trauma and the effects of interpersonal violence or clumsiness or uh or, or ritual behaviors that will oh. impact bone and cause fracture or change and then perhaps eventual healing or not. So we've looked intensively at that over many, many decades to try to understand aspects of, of human behavior, about human growth and development, about human social interactions. And so this is this is another field as well as aspects of how individuals and how groups perhaps treated those with a, a fracture bone of some sort. So a study that I had done with a close colleague in, in Britain, we looked at fractures in bones from medieval populations around England. And we wanted to see whether or not we could find any signs of an understanding of immobilizing or reducing a fracture in some way. So what we would call maybe early, you know, medical practice, but we're not going to be able to necessarily see uh, when we excavate, you know, remnants of a sling, something of that sort. So we did it using a different route, which is to take a look at how bones heal and which bones will heal poorly, usually if it's, there's a severe fracture and which bones are less likely to severely uh, to heal in a severe configuration. And we've found that bones that were possibly more likely to really be impacted and to heal poorly, we found that they were often healed quite well. And so oh. because of that, our conclusion was it's very likely that they were either putting into a sling and greatly immobilizing limbs, for instance, when an individual had fractured their legs or their arms. So these are some of kind of that indirect way that we're looking at health and disease, considering fractures and trauma as a, as a disease as well. We've explored a lot of medical history on this podcast. And of course, a lot of what we go off of, and Josh, you'll attest to this, are, you know, leftover remnants of texts, you know, mm -hmm. that we kind of go over where someone will come up with, you know, an antimicrobial goulash or, you know, <laughs> someone, someone like Herodotus or something, you know, coming up with, a, oh, this is how one must spin the poultice and this kind of thing. But this is a fantastic you know, kind of forensic way to actually trace out medical, like historical medical technique. One of the things I, I would love to ask is certainly the field of archaeology has come on occasion within a controversial lens for its, you know, some of the destructive approaches that you said. So are there any ethical issues that come up in paleopathology in terms of, you know, 
are these claimed bodies? Are you getting permission? Is there even anybody to give permission? You know, what's what's informed consent look like when somebody is centuries dead? Well, that's a great question. Well, this is a an enormous focus of attention right now and has garnered a tremendous amount of care and concern by the paleopathological community and the what we'll call the larger bioarchaeological community. Because what we often think about when we talk about human skeletal remains are perhaps remains that you see in a museum or remains that were part of collections at medical schools. And by and large, while for centuries or for decades at least, these these human remains have been used for us to understand what might a disease look like in bone when we don't have tissues left. What we're also beginning to realize is that the individuals whose bodies are part of collections and museums and part of collections in of medical schools and at universities just used for teaching are not of individuals who gave conformed consent to to use their bodies after they died. Rather, what happened much more likely is that these were individuals who had were removed more from uh, from the ability to make decisions, and their families, if they had families, didn't have that option to to make a decision as well. So, individuals who were poor and found themselves in a hospital setting or in a, a poor house or an insane asylum, their bodies for, for decades throughout the 19th century were just automatically sent to medical schools often for use for, uh, for dissection or were, were buried and then, then unburied <laughs> to be used as a cadaver later. Or they were, if they had died with a condition in in a hospital or a facility of some sort, then doctors wanted to use their remains in order to, to teach. And if the condition they had was deemed spectacular, then quote unquote spectacular, then their bodies often became part of a, of a teaching collection. And over the literally centuries, there's thousands and thousands and thousands of human remains of individuals who did not indicate or provide permission that this is how they could we could use their bodies then and today so we're talking a lot now about what to do what is what's the ethical next steps and and how do we contend with these vast issues of of human rights and human dignity and uh human privilege that's a big concern and I imagine it affects the data as well to kind of go back to tuberculosis, which um, I do want to ask you about a study that's come up as well. I imagine if you find a f- graveyard full of tuberculosis, it's much more likely to be someone who is living in crowded or unsanitary conditions or the ancient equivalent of, again, public housing or incarceration or any of those risk factors, you're probably not digging up the ancient versions of the Kardashians because those are all historically protected. So the kind of conditions that you're learning about are also affected by the culture. Is that is that kind of what you've been driving at with some of these, the, the demographics that affect your interpretations? Well, to a certain extent, yes. So the individuals whose bodies we are much more likely to excavate or going to be impacted by development are ones of individuals whose gravestones were removed, who were buried in a cemetery that then became a park and then a building was built on it. You know, all these things have happened over centuries and the the use of cemeteries and people's uh, ideas of what a cemetery ought to, to be have changed profoundly over time. And so what we'll often find is that we're much more likely to to be given the legal authority to recover these bodies of individuals who didn't have the resources to necessarily put up huge monuments or mausoleum to, to their loved ones. And 
conversely, those individuals that in the text and in history we find a great deal of information about are the ones who had access to education and resources. They're leaving documents and indicators of wealth. How do you get that permission then? Who do you ask? Do you, do you just ring up the government and say, hey, uh, we saw a graveyard that looks kind of nice. Mind if we dig around and, you know, poke around, see what's going on. You know, who, who gives you that permission? And, and, and you said, and you also mentioned, you know, uh, you get the permission if it's a good question. What's an example of a good question? Well, those are two very different, uh, different concerns. Okay. With, with different, uh, context to them. So permission, for instance, to excavate is not is not predicated on me saying, oh, man, there's a cemetery there. I want to excavate it. But rather, it's usually the result of a long history of, let's say, urban cemetery use. So uh, a number of years ago, not too long ago, I excavated a cemetery in a smaller city in downstate Illinois, and it was a city cemetery kind of in the center of the city. It was a square block and it was, there was a, there was records and plats and people paid to have their loved ones buried there, but it became overcrowded and a new cemetery was built that, that reflected a new understanding or a new desire to beautify death, the rolling hills and ponds. And so people were asked at that time, and this is in 1800s, well, if you'd like to have your loved one's bodies moved to this new cemetery, you can do so. And so hundreds of people did that, but many, many people didn't. And the plot of land that was a cemetery was then designated as a park and headstones and everything were removed and it remained as a park within the city. And then in 1911, a library was built in the center of it. And so now that the library wanted to expand further, there was a really good chance that there were still going to be human remains that needed to be preserved. So it becomes the onus of often historical preservation agencies within in different states and different laws within different states that will then determine, is it reasonable, is it ethical, is it imperative for this cemetery to be disturbed in any way? And then if the decision is yes, then it must be done using a registered archaeological company with a registered expert on human skeletal remains of the excavation of remains there on the site at all times. So that's that kind of permission. Okay. Oh, I didn't realize there were archaeological companies. Is there a lot of competition for who gets access to sites or? Yes. Yes. So they oh, wow. put in a bid to the state. At least this is how it's done in, in Illinois. You you put a bid into the state, and it depends on on the uh, who is has jurisdiction. So in this instance, if it's if it's uh, public land, then the state of Illinois Historic Preservation Agency will have jurisdiction, and they assess whether or not it's a historic site, and can ask archaeological companies to put in bids to see do we. Do you think that there's human remains there or what the extent might be? And then once that original or introductory survey is completed, then it goes into step three, or step four, or step five in terms of, well, what are going to be that these next approaches that we're going to take? So for this cemetery in downstate Illinois, it was a huge area that was going to be impacted. But as we did our work to try to find if there were human, if there were bodies still there, there were close to 300. Well, there were no way that they were going to excavate and disturb at that, that level. And so the architects changed their plans and made it much smaller. And we only excavated the part that was going to be impacted by these new architectural plans and all the other areas were totally covered over and resotted so that they would be further protected. How has your view of the field changed or evolved since that first dig? I thought I loved archaeology when I was a kid. I I would go and visit all different archaeological sites. My father loved history and, and archaeology. And so there was a fascination. I didn't understand the methods. I didn't understand or, or recognize the rigor that was involved, both physical and intellectual. And when I 
began to focus it more on it more intensively during college. I wasn't I wasn't necessarily enjoying it because how it was being taught wasn't necessarily intellectually compelling. They weren't asking questions that I found were very interesting. I wasn't as interested in ceramics or pottery. I, I wanted to understand more about the actual people and behavior. And as I came to find out, as we spoke before about, you know, their biology and their diseases. And so I think it took a considerable amount of time before I realized that excavations really needed a wide variety of different experts, not just in terms of excavating itself technically, but how you begin to analyze and interpret these remains. And so I think that that was one of the greatest changes and approaches that I have. It's not a single individual going out and excavating. You need lots of different people with different expertise and very importantly, with very different perspectives to provide you with questions you would never have thought to even pose. That is so neat. So can I ask then uh, in terms of, because you came at your current field via a PhD in anthropology, am I correct? Yes. Oh, I wonder. So are there other uh, people in your discipline who've actually arrived at your field via um, different pathways, either different disciplines within, you know, anthropology or PhD or e- even MDs or oh, is, absolutely. is it? Oh, okay. Absolutely. Cool. But most of the MDs that I know who have come to my field it is not what they do exclusively, right? So oh, it's a side that's game. not what they train. So I trained in academia to, right. and stayed within academia to be an academic, right? So yeah, I yeah. have this luxury of, of focusing intensively on paleopathology in all different directions. People who are trained as a medical doctor, you, you got a lot of debt that you got to pay off. And, yeah. <laughs> and you tend to like living people in some way, so, shape, some or form. Fashion. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> but we have many, many medical doctors who have extraordinarily important roles in assisting with our understanding of disease in the past. I am not a diagnostician. I don't know a gajillion different diseases because that's not what I come across. Nor do I know everything about differential diagnosis. That is not my training. And so I'll rely on working with medical doctors, whether they, they're focusing on pathology or radiology or infectious disease. They're or- going to provide this this level of expertise and, and, and nuance. Love it. That's so fantastic. To me, that's what's fun. You mentioned a bit earlier that you occasionally have your students pick out the many mistakes in the television show Bones. Uh, and I note that <laughs> before I ask what some of those mistakes are, I note that you're also on occasion a, a forensic consultant for the FBI's evidence response team, and you've worked with law enforcement. What What is your role there? Is Is this like a TV show where they're like, oh, we found these old remains, you know, buried under a parking lot, King Richard III style? Or <laughs> are you being ac- asked to solve cold cases? T- tell me about this. I'm fascinated. Okay. Well, first of all, I'm going to start with the with the first, the preliminary question you asked, which was about errors in the show mm-hmm. and um I, I can't watch it so it, it it drove me crazy but i think the very first episode as i watched it and the lead woman uh, the the forensic anthropologist i don't know does some spectacular uh moves to arrest or stop a perpetrator of some sort i realize one my identification and credential cards with the Cook County Sheriff clearly says I'm not entitled to own or use a gun. It says it right oh, there. <laughs> oh, she she actually For which went my family after... is very pleased to read. Yeah. <laughs> so she went after like she she did the science in the lab, and then she like ran after the perp. Well, like a cop. yeah. So that's the that's the other component. I don't solve crimes. 
Sure. <laughs> I, I don't okay. solve them. I'm not a detective. That's not my role. My role is to be given given material. And in this instance, in many instances, the material could be human remains, and they could be human, usually human remains that are severely decomposed or that are completely skeletonized. And to begin to provide to law enforcement, to the provide to the medical examiner's office as much detail as I can that could help them answer the questions that they wish to answer. So I'm often asked, can I determine the age of death of the individual? Can I estimate the sex? Can I tell them something about the stature? Can I provide something perhaps about ancestry? Can I find aspects of the human body that might have been evident or in a medical record of this individual? And so, or something that a unique identifier, or can I find instances where there might have been interpersonal violence or trauma of some sort that occurred around the time of death? That's what I do. And then I write a report and I submit it and then it's over. That's it. (laughs) I don't run out. I don't interview. I don't arrest. None of those. (laughs) And when I go to court, it is only to explain my methods and the way that I've come to my conclusions so that the jury understands how I, the, the, inf- the how knowledge I that you're able yeah. to contribute in that field. Um, are there any protections that you have? I, I know oftentimes when you're called in for expertise or anybody's called in for expertise, you can sometimes be biased by other facts from the, you know, the findings of the detectives who are on the site and that kind of a thing. Do you um, have anything to kind of shield yourself from, from that kind of a thing? So you can just focus on the question at hand with the evidence that you have. I'm being brought in to provide my opinion, my scientific opinion. I'm brought in to provide a, uh, an opinion that'll hold up in court. It'll hold up upon rigorous scrutiny. So I don't care what others want me to answer for the question or what they're hoping that I'll find. I am only going to work on what I see because otherwise I can't support my conclusion. And so there are, there are times that I work quite decidedly with blinders on where I'll tell the detective, I'll tell the FBI agent, don't tell me anything about it. Let me just work on this first. Right, right. And then if there's other questions or there's or there's uh, components that are odd or not or unexpected, then I can reevaluate. So maybe the proposed manner of death or where that person was found, could that have impacted what I was seeing? And maybe that then has to be taken into consideration as I analyze the remains. We, we sent you a link to this article just that we found kind of interesting earlier. And this would be the coldest of cold cases, which, which we would like your help on. Towards uh, to explain the article. So the remains of 83 people had been found underneath the floor of a house in northern Syria in, prepare for mispronunciations, Dejad el-Mukhara. And this, you know, this, this is not... A murder mystery in that sense. Uh, this, you know, a lot of people, according to the article, who lived in that region buried their dead beneath their homes. But in five of the bodies, they found tuberculosis. And the author of this article was doing the literary equivalent of cartwheels because he said this is the oldest human tuberculosis. Why is this a significant finding from this article? Well, as the infectious disease expert who is on (laughs) this podcast can probably tell you (laughs) equally as well, diseases often, or pathogens, often rely on particular hosts. They don't rely on tons of different types of animals. That's not always the case, but it's frequently the case. And what we find over time is that there can be, as we talked about before, selection for by the pathogen for for particular hosts that all of a sudden they realize, whoa, this is a great environment and I can flourish here and my offspring are flourishing. And so they begin to use one particular host preferentially. And TB 
or mycobacteria tuberculosis, which is the, the, the pathogen, has a very long history in, in human remains. So we know that it's been around. But we also know that mycobacteria are also found in, in other mammals. So we find them, for instance, in, in cows and, and, and many other uh, four-legged creatures. And because of this, one of the things that we originally thought was that, in fact, tuberculosis in humans started because it began as a disease in cows. And as humans began to domesticate cows, that that pathogen became. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 